You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today, I'm talking about lead screening, poisoning, and management. Joining me is Dr. Kevin Osterhout from the Division of Emergency Medicine, also at CHOP, and the director of the Poison Control Center. So thank you so much for joining me. Hi, good afternoon, Katie. It's great to have you here. Thanks. So in talking about lead, let's start with how did we get here? So why do we have lead in our environment in the first place? Yeah, terrific. Well, you know, lead is an amazingly valuable metal. It has been, it's one of the first metals that was ever mined from the earth and used for processes, right? And so lead was used to make tin cups. Lead has been used to make plumbing. Lead has been used um, in so many different facets of um, modern life. And unfortunately, one of the other things we found that lead did was made it an excellent white paint pigment and gave paint extra strength. And so using lead as a component of house paint seemed like a really good idea. Um, I don't know the chemistry of this so much, but we also found that having lead in gasoline kind of helped our car engines to run a little bit better, especially in the pre-catalytic converter days. And so we would often have lead in our gasoline as well. And um, so then when you build society like Philadelphia or other big old cities, you can imagine that we've had lots of houses that have been painted with lead. We've had lots of cars that were spewing lead exhaust out into the environment and um, then lots of industry to create that lead. So did we not know that lead had harmful effects when we were putting it in our paint and our gasoline? Um, you know, I, I think early on we... You know, we, we didn't know about all of the harmful effects of lead, but we've been gathering information. Um, back in the Roman Empire, when they would make aqueducts that would bring water from the mountains into the cities, um, even the architects back at that time knew that when they made their aqueducts, it was better to make them out of stone and not out of lead because lead was harmful to the population. There have even been some interesting essays you can find online and in magazines suggesting that lead poisoning was the cause of the decline of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. because all of their pots and pans and everything were made from lead and they were drinking from it all the time. That's interesting. Um, and it wasn't until the late 1800s that uh, in Australia, um, the observation was made that children with acute lead poisoning could have seizures or go into a coma. And then it's been even more recent, really work of Herb Needleman in the 1970s, um, showing that even low levels of lead, the kinds that we're finding on blood testing today, probably do cause neurocognitive injury and declines in IQ of populations. So we've started to remove lead from our environment, but it's still there. What are some of the common sources, since we're not putting it in our gasoline or our house paint anymore, where are kids getting exposure to lead now? Yeah. So even though we've we've made these changes, we have a persistent environment. So they're still our biggest threats, right? So, um, you know, I think everybody listening to this podcast is tuned in because they know that lead is such an environmental challenge to our children. 
On the other hand, we can look at it as one of our true great environmental success stories. We've rem um, in the 1970s, we removed the use of lead from house paint. Um, in then after that, up in through 1990, we removed lead from gasoline. And in that time, we've seen it change from in the 1960s, nearly 20% of children tested had blood lead levels higher than 10, mm. to now where we're down to less than 4% of children have blood lead levels higher than five. So that's an amazing improvement in just four decades of time. But again, if you uh, are in Pennsylvania, if you're in New Jersey and you look around, most of our housing stock was built before 1950 or certainly before 1978. Right. Most of our plumbing was put in before that time. And so we still have lead paint in the area. That paint um, deteriorates into this microscopic dust that has lead in it and becomes a harm for our children. And then we can also find lead sometimes within our house in imported products as well, right? Yeah, so you know we, we've come a long way in the United States at trying to limit lead that's in consumer products, but that's not necessarily true around the world. And um, so I had one family with a child who had a high blood lead level, and we looked at what where they lived and their house was new, and we looked at the parents' occupations and there was nothing. And it wasn't until we found out that they were importing some spices from overseas. And then we found that those spices had high lead content and that was going directly into their food. Um, so that's a place we can see it. We see it in costume jewelry um, from time to time, makeup, and then especially um, herbal supplements and medications. You have to be really careful if you are trying to get an herbal supplement that's not from a trusted source, a, a commercial manufacturer who's at risk. If you get it from other countries, then it could have lead or even other metals like arsenic or mercury in it. Mm -hmm. So why are we even concerned about lead? What, why are we talking about this so much? What are the long-term effects for children? Yeah, so <clears throat> it turns out that um, in almost every animal system we've tried to look at it in, lead is a nerve poison. It damages brain cells. And um, for you know, kind of like high blood pressure in adults, people walk around with high blood pressure. They don't really know you have high blood pressure until you measure their blood pressure and you see it's high. And we know that, boy, if they have that for a long time, it could lead to heart disease and strokes and all those types of problems. Well, there are children who are walking around with high levels of lead in their blood. They look okay. They're... They're friendly, they're playing at their sports field and all of that type of thing. But if we screen them and we find that they have a high blood lead level, um, we know that they've had that exposure. And when we study populations, if we take a group of children um, with a blood lead level of 10 and a group of children with a blood lead level of one, and we compare them, the group of children with the blood lead level of 10 will be described as being more irritable, be described as being more hyperactive, and if you do IQ testing, we'll generally be found to have about 10 points lower scores on their IQ testing. And those losses of, that loss of IQ points is not regainable, right? So once you, the lead exposure is there, it's sort of done its damage? For as much as we've studied lead, um, you'd think we'd know great answers, right? Even lead exposure is hard to measure. There's probably a difference between being a one-year-old who at, the day before his first birthday had a non-measurable lead level. Mm -hmm. the day, at his birthday party, he eats a lead fishing sinker, gets a lead level of 60. Right. And then five days later, the lead is out of his body. His peak level was 60. If we measured at that time, it would be 60. Mm -hmm. And the effect on him would be relatively low. 
if we had another child who at three months was on the floor in a lead environment, by five months was crawling in this lead and putting in his mouth, by eight months was picking up toys and putting them in his mouth to have lead, is checked at a year and is found to have a lead level of even 40, he's probably going to be much more affected than that other child because the duration of his exposure was longer. Um, and similarly, our brains are remarkably adept at, at remodeling, right? We know if you have a stroke, you can go through physical therapy and you can recover some of that neurological finding. And I, I believe that some of that is true for lead. But in general, we say that the, the injury from, you know, the injury from lead is permanent. There was a study in 2017 that followed a cohort of children who had lead poisoning when they were one and two years of age and checked to see how they were doing in mid-adulthood and found that they um, were less likely to have finished different levels of schooling, were less likely to have high-paying jobs, were more likely to have um, criminal arrest records and, and things of that nature. So we do think that this is a, a lifelong um, challenge. And so given the concern for lead and the fact that it's still in our environment, when should we be screening children for lead exposure? Yeah. Um, you know, children get exposed to the dust in their environment. And so it's when they can move around in their environment and when they get oral mouth or um, oral hand behaviors that the risk becomes highest. We generally see the highest blood lead levels in children between one and two years of age. And so currently, um, the health department of the state of New Jersey, the health department of the state of Pennsylvania, both say that we should be testing children for blood lead levels around the first birthday and around the second birthday. Most of the guidelines say nine to 12 months for that first check. And um, I think that that's a, a good time to be doing testing. And that's all children, right? And because now we're that's, in a high-risk area here. Yeah. Pennsylvania has among the, the highest lead burden of any state in the country. And so we consider the whole state to be at risk. And so all children should be screened. And children who are at a lead level of less than 45 don't need chelation. But what advice should we be giving families who have children in that, uh, in that range, maybe say a lead level of even 10 or 15. Yeah, I think it's it's scary as a parent to find that your child has an elevated blood lead level. And, uh, you know, as doctors and nurses and pharmacists, we want to do something so much for them. So there are medications called chelating agents. Uh, the most common one that people know of is called Suximer or DMSA. And, and um, so a lot of people want something to be done for that lead. But we have done tests with that medicine for children with lead levels below 45, and we haven't been able to show benefit, but you do come with a risk of the side effects of the medicine and the cost. So we don't recommend chelation in that time. Mm -hmm. um, I often say that there are three mo the three most important things to do for a child with an elevated blood lead level. Number one, to try to eliminate further exposure to lead for that child. Number two is to try to eliminate further exposure to lead for that child. And number three is to try to eliminate further exposure to lead for that child. Got it. So it becomes important that we do a good environmental health history. Where does the child live? Not just where does he live, what's his address on his forms that he fills out. How but does, old is it? Yeah, does, does he spend time at a grandmother's house? Does he spend a lot of time at a school or a daycare setting? You need to know about all of those environments, right? Right. Um, the highest amounts of lead were put in houses before 1950. Um, it lowered a little bit, but it was still being used through 1978. I usually say 1980 because everybody had a couple extra cans of paint in their basement um, <laughs> even after the ban, right? right. Um, and if so, if you live in Pennsylvania and you live in a house that was built before 1978, 
there's lead there. Right. And then the question is how much of it is out there for exposure for the, the children? And the more deteriorated it is, um, the longer the house has been there, you know, a, a house, an old farmhouse from 1810 is going to have more lead in the soil around the house and, and things of that nature. Uh, we want to know about the parents' occupations, right? Are, um, do the parents, you know, are any of the parents working with lead in their jobs? Could they be a painter at the shipyard? Mm-hmm. Um, we want to know about hobbies. Does anybody go to a gun range to shoot, maybe get lead exposure there? Um, does anybody make stained glass in the home, pack their own shotgun shells? I'm a fisherman, mm-hmm. and I've started to transition away from my lead fishing weights, but lead fishing weights are very common uh, in that circumstance. We'd like to know what the water source is. Um, it's also helpful kind of in the public response to know whether they own their own home or are renting their home from, from somebody else. And then we want to know, do they import any spices? Do they import any cosmetics? Do they usually any special family heirloom ceramics or pottery or, or have anything like that, that that could be an exposure? And then do you recommend that we refer these children for early intervention or uh, Head Start or other programs like that to stimulate their cognitive development when they have an elevated lead level. Yeah, so I think the, the more we exercise the brain and the more we can protect the brain, the better it will be able to handle the lead exposure. And so I think um, any child with a blood lead level higher than five is a great candidate for either early Head Start or Head Start, depending upon their age. And um, it used to be you know, I think it has been the role of the pediatrician and family doctor to monitor children's development and if they fell behind to refer them for early intervention. And with more recent um, legislation in Philadelphia and, and most of Pennsylvania, now any child with a blood lead level higher than five is at least eligible for an early intervention evaluation if you think that that's warranted. Which is great. Why do we put kids with an elevated lead level on an iron supplement or vitamin with with iron in it? Yeah, Um, lead is a divalent metal, right? If you write down the chemical symbol, which is PB, Mm -hmm. which is where the word plumber came from and stuff, which is interesting. But um, if you write down the PB, you put a two plus up by it, right? Mm -hmm. When you write down calcium, you put a two plus by it. When you put down iron, you put a two plus by it. And so our intestine sees these divalent metals and wants to absorb them. If we're low in calcium, our body wants calcium, so we'll try to absorb more. If we're low in iron, our body wants iron, we'll try to absorb more. And so we think that if we can make sure that the body has the calcium and iron it needs, it will be trying to grab less. And if it's less grabby, it will grab less lead in the meantime. Um, The other thing to know is that lead, chronic lead exposure can cause anemia and can contribute to iron deficiency anemia. So lead exposures can cause anemia too. So I don't think every child has to be on an iron supplement or a calcium supplement, but we want them to have a well-rounded diet. If they're not getting enough of those, it's probably a good idea to um, consider supplementation. Mm -hmm. Great. Once we have a child with an elevated lead level, when should we be rechecking it? How frequently should we be rechecking these levels? And how fast would I expect the level to decline after the exposure has been eliminated? Um, that's a, a great question, Katie, and um, probably more complicated in my brain than it, than it needs to be. Um, <clears throat> as we talked about, our three most important principles are to remove the child from exposure to the lead. And so the most important thing for us is, are we effective in that? And if they're still in that environment where they were found to have a high blood lead level, then we know they're, they're gonna to continue to be exposed to more. Mm-hmm. So if you get a first blood lead level that is high, 
Um, you probably want to repeat another one in three to four weeks time and just see where is it going? Is it continuing to climb? Is it high? Right. Is it stable? Similarly, if I have somebody who's in a, a lead endangered environment and I move them to a lead safe environment, I want to see is it really safe and, and what's happening. After that, it kind of becomes, you know, there are different guidelines written down, but it becomes kind of medical common sense. If I've measured, even if it's high, if I've got them in a lead safe environment now and I've measured them three times consecutively and each one it's been dropping down, I should be spacing out their their levels and unless something changes. Um, if it's continuing to go up or if I have continued concerns that I want to continue to do them fairly frequently. Um, in an acute exposure, somebody just ate lead paint chips yesterday, mm -hmm. it will get absorbed from their stomach into their blood, their level will go high, and then it will redistribute out to tissues, and then it will come down. You see that come down quicker. If you have a child who's just had kind of the, the daily house dust exposure, you found it a year, they have an elevated blood level, say it's 25 or it's 30, and um, you say you do the right steps to get them into a lead-safe environment, you can expect their blood lead level to come down about six micrograms per deciliter per year. Okay. So that's about one point every other month um, and continue to come down as long as they are now in a lead safe environment. Right, and so if it's not coming down and we kind of get stuck at the same number, then we know we haven't removed the source and we need to keep exploring for where the lead's coming that's from. That's right, there's still exposure. So when should we refer patients with an elevated lead level for more emergent care? And what would we expect a place like an emergency room to do? Sure. So the, the majority of the response to a child with an elevated blood lead level is environmental and social, right? We need to find a safe place for them to be. Right. We need to find a way to help the family figure out how to have a safer environment for their child. And that will differ a little bit whether they own the house, whether they rent the house. Um, there's a lot of injustice in this. Um, obviously, if you're a wealthy person, you can afford to do more than, than people that struggle more with poverty. Mm -hmm. um, if your blood lead level is higher than 45, that's when we consider you to be a candidate for a chelation medicine. If you're above 70, um, we then start to consider whether you warrant an IV or intramuscular chelating agent. So I would say any child over 70 certainly should go to the hospital, mm -hmm. plan for admission, plan for a psychoservices evaluation, and right. get chelation started. If you're between 45 and 70, then um, the most common therapy that would be offered would be an oral chelating agent called Suxmer or DMSA. Suxmer could theoretically be given on an outpatient basis. You don't have to be inpatient. So what are the things that are important to me? Is the child symptomatic? If they're significantly symptomatic, it's probably a good idea to have that evaluated a little bit more at a hospital. Right. Do I have a good feeling that the child just ate a bunch of lead stuff? Do I think they have a belly full of lead-based paint? In which case, a referral to an emergency department setting might allow us to do some type of a GI decontamination of them. Can I find a lead safe place for them to go, right? If, if I found that my children had a high blood lead level and I thought it was from my house, I could move into my sister's. Katie, I could probably call you and you'd probably have me over, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I have connections and resources that I'm able to do that. If I wanted, I could take a week's vacation and I could go find a hotel to stay in somewhere with a nice swimming pool and a free breakfast buffet, right? Unfortunately, not all families are as fortunate as mine, and, and it can be a struggle to find houses that are cleaner. I've had some children where they've moved from their house 
to a family member's house only to find that that family member's house had an even bigger lead burden than the one that we were going to. So a couple of things that you can use to tell. One of the things is, do you know when the house or apartment they're moving to was built? If it was right. built after 1980, you're probably pretty safe with that as a place to go. Right. The second thing is, are there any children already living in the house that you're moving to and have they ever had their blood lead levels tested? Mm -hmm. If they have and their blood leads were fine, then that's probably a safe environment. If the children there have had high blood lead levels too, then, then you probably um, shouldn't do that. So kids between 45 and 70 should probably go to the hospital if try and try, you can't find a safe place for them to go, then that's the place where we can put them where they'll be safe. And then the other thing is that this oral chelating medicine, the Suxmer, it, it's made of these sulfur moieties. Mm -hmm. It smells like rotten eggs. It tastes like rotten eggs and it's, it only comes in capsules. Sounds so, like kids would love it. Not yeah. so easy to take. So, uh, you know, we have some tricks. You can put it, you can open a capsule onto a spoon of chocolate syrup or chocolate pudding. They've even had um, one family that swore, the child was a little older, but she swore by using um, crunchy peanut butter. Okay. She'd put it on a quarter of a sandwich and the crunchiness of the peanut butter would kind of mask the, the taste of the, the capsules a little bit. But yeah. if you really think that there's no way the parent's going to be able to get the medicine in the child, that's probably a reason for a referral to are there kids beyond the routine screening age, so after the age of two, who you would recommend screening? So I'm thinking about kids maybe with um, a history of behavioral or developmental delays who maybe mouth things, um, or children who live in a new environment from the one where they were previously screened, or what we might believe to be a high-risk um, exposure, maybe a parent's new occupation. So when things change after the screening, do you rescreen again? Yeah, great. For average household lead poisoning, most children will show it by two. And if they haven't had it by two, they're gonna be fine. Um, there are some children that we don't detect them by two, right? And so if we haven't tested them at one or two and we don't know, mm -hmm. then we would like to test them before they start kindergarten. Right. If they have come from somewhere else, right? If it's, a, if it's an international adoptee mm -hmm. or um, even not an adoptee, just a family moving to the United States from another country right. and they've never had the test done, then it would certainly make sense to test them. Mm -hmm. And otherwise I think we can kind of look and say, well, you know, we should do the testing whenever we think that there's a child at risk. And so if um, a family has had testing, they've been fine, but then they come in and they say that they've put a new addition out of their kitchen and their contractor, when he dug in, said, you know what, all these boards had lead paint on them and it was all of that. That would probably be a reasonable time to test them again and see what their exposures were. Um, similarly, if you know a child's been tested, but he takes a trip to his grandmother's house and is found eating the um, paint from the baseboards in her 1927 home, then it would probably be reasonable to check a blood lead level. And we do detect children like that um, mm -hmm. with some frequency. And something that you taught me is to think about the siblings of the children. So not just the child who we tested, but maybe they have a younger sibling who hasn't been screened yet, an infant say. Um, so should we think about screening somebody before the age of nine months if an older sibling has an elevated level? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, children with elevated blood lead levels have exposures and they're telling us exposures are there. And, um, you know, now I'm, I'm old enough in my career that I have seen children for lead poisoning. And when they've come to see me, their moms have recognized me and said, hey, Dr. O, because I took care of them for lead poisoning too. Oh, no. and, um, and we certainly see that with siblings. And so if you have a newborn baby in your practice and 
the both the older siblings have had high blood lead levels and you know that they haven't really squared away the environment that they're living in then testing that child earlier would be better nine months would be better than a year for that children and some of them i might even think about doing six months as a first check mm-hmm. and that's because lead can be transmitted across the placenta too right so even a child who's not mobile and crawling if the mom is exposed in that house she could be passing lead yeah i think you know at at six months of age um, i'd still be looking for the kind of environmental house lead and just trying to get a handle on it Mm -hmm. sooner and no but lead does cross the placenta and lead gets stored in our bones and stays in our bones for a long time and so when girls get lead poisoned with very high levels of blood lead and we get their blood lead level down, they probably still have a lot in their bones and that will remobilize during that metabolic period of pregnancy, increase their blood lead level, that lead can go to the placenta. And so um, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology actually has its own kind of recommendations for screening pregnant women for elevated blood lead levels. And um, if, if we had reason to believe that the fetus might be exposed, then there's no reason not to do a postnatal blood lead test, even on cord blood. So where, what lessons have we learned so far and where do you feel like we're going with lead in Philadelphia? You painted a sort of an optimistic picture that things have improved over the generations. Do we have room to improve? Yeah, you know, you can you can look at lead poisoning through two different lenses, right? It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. And, you know, again, I think it has been a great environmental success story. We've done primary prevention. We've said we need to get lead out of gasoline. We took it out. We need to get lead out of house paint. We took it out. That's awesome. And we've seen national lead levels plummet. So that's really wonderful. Yeah, that's great. On the other hand, as we have learned a lot more about the dangers to the developing brain of even low levels of lead, we know that there are still way too many children exposed. And um, I often characterize lead being a burglar, right? It's creeping into our children's homes undetected and it's stealing from them. It's stealing their potential. And so how can we help those children? Um, the This new legislation suggesting that we, or telling us that we ought to be doing screening for everybody at age one and two is gonna be very helpful for us at painting a more thorough epidemiological picture. We'll know what the problem in Pennsylvania, New Jersey really is. We'll even be able to look geographically and see where are the hotspots, where, where the biggest problems are. Um, however, the key really is prevention. And that's our, our biggest societal challenge because in Pennsylvania, two thirds to three quarters of the housing stock that people are living in were built before 1978, and they all have lead in them to varying extents. And the way to really prevent lead poisoning from happening is to remove children from that exposure to lead. And so how do we get the lead out of all of those homes? How do we get lead out of the parks our children play ball on? Mm-hmm. And, um, and how do we do that prevention? So. You know, when I talk to friends and family members and really educated young people who are thinking about families, I say, you know, it's at the time of family planning when you're saying, I think I want to have children. That's really the time to look and say, does my house have lead hazards in it? Does my use of these imported herbal products bring lead into the issue? Does my job bring lead into the issue? And what can I do to minimize those risks so my child never gets it in the first place and his blood lead level at a year of age is is normal? I think the The other big challenge for us is we know that we live in a world with limited funds. There's not the money to do everything that we want. 
And our children face so many challenges, right? right. They face challenges in food insecurity. They face challenges in, in um, exposure to good education. They find challenges in all types of medical events. And so as we allocate our money, which is a finite resource, into figuring out how much of what we put towards lead and how much we put into these other determinants of neurocognitive growth and health, um, that's a really big question. Well, we appreciate all the work you do in this. We could talk about this forever. It's very interesting, but we will link to some more resources on our website so people can read more if they're interested. That's www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. And we know that we can find you uh, both in the emergency department, which hopefully we won't need, but also at the Poison Control Center. So thank you for uh, teaching us more about lead today. Yeah, thank you, Katie. I really appreciate you bringing this, this topic up for everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.